Welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a CMIO and a practicing physician and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that there's a lot of confusion on this. It's the NCPDP scripts, which is a standard and the support act. And we're going to be talking about an ONC rule, all having to do with e-prescribing and the changes that are coming. And many CMIOs are unaware of this or not prepared. Some of these things were finalized over the summer. And I think there's some confusion around what we have to do by January 1 of this year and what's January 1 of next year. And so I'm bringing in an expert because I am not an expert at this. I'm the one who has a lot of questions about this. And I'm thrilled. I've got Scott Bosnick with me, who is a PharmD. He comes out of Hartford Healthcare in Connecticut. And he's a PharmD informaticist, which is also unique. And so hey, I need to get a little bit caught up on what that is as well. Scott, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, Great. I'm really glad you're here because this is a confusing topic and we need an expert and I'm not it. So like most of the things that happen when I'm inviting guests on the show, I am not the expert. So tell us a little bit, if you would, about yourself, how you became an informaticist and what your role is. What do you do for a living? Sure, yeah. So about uh, graduated pharmacy school 10 years ago from UConn and worked as a staff pharmacist for three or four years. And during that, I got involved in different IT projects, CPOE, barcoding, etc. And I had the opportunity, Hartford Healthcare, about five years ago decided, hey, you know, we are a growing system. We are taking on hospitals, clinics, offices. We need to have an integrated EHR. So six years ago, we started the the journey, so to speak, to go on to one integrated jar. And we developed a team of uh, informaticists, technical support, uh, analysts from all around our, our region. And uh, so far, we've come up and we've integrated six hospitals, uh, soon to be a seventh next year, hundreds of clinics, uh, home hospice, oncology, you name it. We're kind of um, live with most of our uh, Epic apps at this point. Tell us what you know about what is this NCPDP Scripps. NCPDP, they're an organization, right? And Scripps is the standard. Help me sort that out. Yes, you have to be a member to really kind of know the history and the the meaning of the organizations. From from my understanding of, of working with the CPDP and kind of some of their their members, they, it stands for National Council of Prescription Drug Programs. They're really the organization that sets standards for e-prescribing. For them, they use a consensus building process to create national standards for real time electronic exchange of healthcare information. And their primary focus is information exchange for prescribing, dispensing, monitoring, and managing and paying for medication. So really, they are not just setting standards for, hey, I'm a prescriber, I need to get a prescription to the pharmacy, but they're also setting standards of, okay, well, what information what information has to get sent over? How does it have to get sent over? Okay, if two pharmacies are talking to each other, how are they going to relay information to each other? If you have a pharmacy and a payer talking to each other, a pharmacy and a PBM talking to each other, a pharmacy and a manufacturer talking to each other, how are they talking together and exchanging data electronically? So they have members from all across the spectrum, uh, EHR vendors, they have SureScripts, obviously, it would be a major member. Your national drug chains are members, your and your payers and your manufacturers are going to be members as well. 
So my clinical analysts who tend to work with shore scripts are in this panic to get something done. And I'm sure other CMIOs are seeing this little scurry of activity around some kind of upgrade that has to be done before January 1. Can you help us understand what's going on there? So it's essentially, uh, CMS came out with a rule in 2018 for the rules and regulations for participation in Medicare Part D. And, and from there, they had a proposed implementation of timeline of, of updating to a new script standard. Um, the old script standard was called NCPDP 10.6, and the new script standard is called NCPDP 2017071. A lot of people just refer to it as 2017 or the new script standard. Uh, I'm not sure why they went with the, with the nomenclature change there. But initially what happened was CMS said, okay, on 1-1-2019, uh, we want to change to a new script standard. And this was their, in their interim rule. It was going to give 13 months for the adjustment. And a one big difference between that and the initial, um, the, the previous upgrade at 10.6 was the one, the length of time in between the, the script standard changes and the announcements was 13 months. Previously, it was a 40-month change. And the sunset period. So initially, um, with the old script standard, there was a much longer sunset period. And with this, there was going to be no sunset period. So there was going to be a big bang. So on 1-1-2019, there was going to be an immediate switch over from one script standard to the, to the next. After co initial public comment, they came out with a revised rule that they delayed it and changed it to 1-1-2020. And also through uh, talks with SureScripts, really educating CMS on, on how difficult this was going to be, they also uh, allowed for a longer sunset period. So CMS says, okay, you have to be live by 1-1-2020. There's no penalties uh, written out in the law that says what happens when you won't be live by then. But I'll tell you, by December of 2020, the old script standard will be retired through SureScripts. So as we know, SureScripts handles the vast majority, if not all, of e-prescribing throughout the United States. So essentially, the old script standard will de facto be retired in December of next year. So I spoke with Andrew Mellon, who's the chief medical officer over at Shorescripts. He, um, he's relatively new there, but I knew him from a previous project, so I was able to pick his brain on some of this. And he indicated the, the same thing that you did, that that drop dead date is December 1, 2020 but that there were some good things that are coming with this uh, new version. So you kind of want to do it sooner. What are the good things that come with the new standard? I think one of the biggest things, uh, the most simplest things, uh, is going to be increased SIG length. I know one of the biggest complaints from providers is there's a 140-character uh, SIG length on, on our prescriptions, which that's, that's not a lot. I always wondered what the, what the reason for that 140 characters was um, and why it was so similar maybe to, to, to a tweet. The original tweet uh, length was 140 characters. Uh, I don't know if there was just a, a coincidence there, but... Um, That's an interesting conspiracy. Yeah, what I tell, actually what I tell, um, what I tell a lot of providers and what it most likely is, is that you have the majority of your members are chain drug and they want to have standards for how big their bottles need to be and how big their labels need to be, right? And what can fit on their label. So it, what most likely it is, is it's a, it's a restriction on the amount of information that needs to go onto that drug label. Uh, that's a big change, right? So when we talk about that, um, what's the advantage of that? Obviously, just more characters is great, but we're not going to be using a thousand characters all the time. But we'll be able to more effectively write out tapers for steroids or, more importantly, opioids. As of recently, we've been doing a lot more opioid tapers. What about insulin instructions, right? So if we want to add some more 
more instructions because remember this sig is what shows on your after visit summaries it's what shows on your in your in your patient portal it's not just what goes to the pharmacy right so if you want to put a, a more extensive sliding scale if you want to put uh, more complex instructions for your insulin I, I think that's a really good thing as well and then uh, complex admin order instructions I, I think we've all heard of the case of us trying to order a an anticoagulant to start at a future date and someone is supposed to stop a different anticoagulant or someone's supposed to titrate off one antidepressant and onto another. Um, that information can be um, put out to the pharmacy directly within the SIG. Because one one thing about the SIG is that when we're taught when you talk to pharmacists, the SIG is that's what they look at. And, and there there is notes there is that notes to the pharmacy section that there is extra information with, but a lot of times that could be missed. But the SIG th that's really prominent in their workflow. So any extra information that we can add there is, is always really good. I also heard about cancel a prescription, cancel RX. Is that specific to shore scripts or is that built into this new standard yeah so there, there are actually some messages that are, are kind of what i i described as old boss same as the new boss so they're new functionality in a sense that um all pharmacies will have to be able to take this functionality so cancel rx and, and another message type called change rx have been around for quite a while and, and they've been available message types on the old script standard of 10.6 now the not to get too far into this, but the, one of the big issues with when you talk to uh, uh, people asking for new functionality, well, well, why can't we cancel prescription through through the EHR? Well, you can, but the issue is the pharmacy has to be able to take that message type, right? They're they're very specific technical types. So if you don't, if you have the technology on your end, but there's not a mass acceptance of that technology on the the pharmacy's end, it's kind of like, well, you know. We could do that, but if only 15% of your pharmacy population takes it, you're still doing the other workflow for 85% of the time. So the advantage here now is you kind of have a stick with CMS saying, you have to go to this standard. And then you have SureScript saying, no, we're going to sunset this standard. So now you have the ability to say, okay, well, I can kind of ensure that at least by the end of next year, I know that if I'm sending a cancel script, the vast majority uh, of pharmacies are taking it. And, and when we look at it, the vast majority of pharmacies, if, if you do have high rates of the big three drug chains, CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid, they're, they're already starting to take these message types and convert over to them. It's so, the mom and pops. It's the smaller drug chains that we're finding are not adopting that. And our emergency department physicians are finding, okay, I just sent your script to the pharmacy. It turns out that pharmacy closed at eight and the patient is just getting out of the of the hospital so now they want to change pharmacy so they want to cancel the prescription that went to the original pharmacy and they're having to do this through manual workflows they're dying to get this cancel rx feature universal so it sounds like a really good thing to me right yeah and yeah it's and one of the big things that's kind of restricted adoption in some cases is basically a lot of pharmacies when you cancel the order they send a response message and say i got it which is great one of the big problems we had was with cvs where they were sending a cancellation message back that had extra information in it so our ehr epic said well we don't know what's in that message it could be clinically important so one of the big things that this is going to adopt that's new with cancel rx is they're going to be standardized messages and, and wording that are, are are approved by ncpdp so that okay yeah if there's no refills on file or patient hasn't picked up or has been transferred, et cetera, those standard messages come back and you can choose which to filter back into your system. So one of the big things that was happening with the organizations is they were getting a, a mass inundation 
of, of alerts in their in-basket every time they canceled the script, and all it was saying was, yes, we got it. So uh, a lot of organizations chose to delay their adoption or just kind of turn those error messages off and risk not seeing a true error message. So EHRs will be able to filter these, these out as standards now, which will be a, a big improvement on workflows for the end users. So that's a discussion that I've been having with our analysts over the last week is what do we do with these messages that confirm the receipt of the cancel RX? And the analysts are worried. They're like, there's going to be something valuable in there. You've got to keep this on. And I'm thinking about the amount of junk that would come to an in-basket, not to mention who's going to be monitoring that if this is an emergency department? Those guys aren't checking their in-baskets. Right, exactly. And, and again, yeah, these, these different places have taken different poaches. All right, my colleagues down at Yale have they've chosen to get inundated. We've talked to experts at Hopkins who actually did uh, just recently release something in Amy, uh, Jamie about this, their success with, with Cancel RX, and uh, they've actually turned the error message off, and they're going back and going to do actual studies to see how many of them were actually clinically significant in the end. This may kind of uh, prove that point uh, moot, but there, there are still risk to, to cancel RX. There, there's still issues of, okay, well, I don't want to cancel it, but I want to hold it. Is there is there a way we can do that? There's still not really a good way to do that in the system. Coming up with standards on, well, there, there are options to say, okay, well, if you just ordered it and it was eight hours ago, do we want you to be able to cancel it, right? There might be a risk that the patient's already picked that up. So we really want you to call the pharmacy. So kind of coming up with standards and, and accepted workflows around that, that's still something that uh, organizations struggle with. And honestly, from my perspective, we, we haven't gone live with it because we were at such a large percentage of our CVS population that we really didn't want inundate our end users. So once we saw this ability was coming down the pike, we we said, okay, let's let's just wait, you know, three or four months to have better end user acceptance. That makes sense. I think that's great information for other CMIOs to know that depending upon who your main pharmacies are, you may or may not want to do this now. The inundating a end user with these messages I think could have you're gonna bury the important things it's just gonna become an automatic delete and then hey the patient already picked up that anticoagulant that you don't want them to take you really do want that one to be stopped and that requires a phone call to the patient oh by the way this electronic stuff doesn't always replace all human to human interaction that's still something we need to do right you agree with that Oh, definitely. I think that that conversation has come up where we've been in those initial planning meetings talking about this and says, oh, well, what happens in X situation? And they said, the fact still remains the same. You need to pick up a phone and, and you need to talk to somebody on, a, on the other end for the betterment of the patient to make sure that everybody knows and is on the same page. Talk to me a little bit about what's happening that is really important for the other informaticists to know out there about electronic prescribing of controlled substances. And is it just narcotics or is it all controlled substances for around Medicare Part D? How does, what's important here? So I think you might be referring to the, the Support Act that is, is, is actually a different act from this. That's an act that specifically looks at things that CMS can do to reduce uh, opioid addiction and improve, improve outcomes there. So one of the things they've done for 1-1-2021 is they've in implemented a law that says basically that that you're going to have to be if you want to participate in Medicare D or Medicare you're going to have to be enabled to accept uh, e-prescribed e control substances. Um, luckily, we we went live on one one. 18, we went live with EPCS uh, because it was a state law in the state of Connecticut. So um, it was nice that 
that it was a state law. It helped kind of push us over the edge. And I think you can kind of use that, that, that same mentality here. I think you talked about that in your last episode is when you can kind of say, okay, let's, you know, we can blame the federal government. Um, it's coming. We, this is something that we have to do. You're able to kind of push that uh, to the next phase. So about half the states do have a law requiring electronic prescribing of controlled substances. And for those who need to know if their state's on it or not, you can go to the Shore Scripts website, shorescripts.com backslash EPCS. They have a map and you can hover and see which ones do and do not. I'm in Maryland. We do not have one, but we have providers that are in Delaware. So they do have one. So we got to put it in place for them. And we got to put it in place for everyone. I would imagine that you can't pick and choose who's going to do that. That would be odd from a workflow standpoint. Yeah, we did that. We we did have some in, in bordering states that weren't going to be alive and be on that law until later. But we said we're uh, an organization as a whole. We're going down this direction and we're kind of going to support this with software. Um, and also the case that we've made and in the case that you will find out is that Providers' lives are easier and they're much happier being able to prescribe controlled substances. Whether it be the ability to fill less pills on an acute prescription because you could rewrite that script without the patient have to, having to come back and do a printed script. Um, something happens where the patient needs it at 3 in the morning because they're breaking through from their, from their surgery that you can, you can hop on and, and send it to a 24-hour pharmacy. And just the general ease of not dealing with the, those paper forms anymore and, and signing those in the office and having that extra security knowing that you're the one that that's prescribing it you know there, there are technical difficulties every so often but we did fairly well within a one month period we went from obviously zero but we climbed to 90 percent in the first week and after a couple of months we were at 90 98 99 percent so it's just it's kind of a given now and now that it's a given we, we we've never looked back so it is a two-factor authentication when you're doing the electronic prescribing for a controlled substance. So my cell phone is getting a ping and I have to click something on my cell phone that says, yep, it's me, I really meant it, I am sending a controlled substance in. Is that how you guys are doing it as well? Are you using some kind of token or what's your method? Yeah, so the the DEA allows for specific products and, and, and two-factor authentication. It's something you are and something you have are the, are the three things. And you have to have two, two distinct ones for two-factor authentication. So something you know is what most places use one factor is their password, right? So we use whatever your password is to the HR, your password is to Active Directory in, in, your, in your Windows account. It could be something you are, which is could be a retinal eye scan or more commonly a fingerprint reader, and then it's something you have, which then becomes either a hard token or, or, or a soft token. This is why that you haven't really seen it rolled out mobily yet. So I know like Epic has the, the Haiku Kanto applications and we can't do that mobily because if you're entering your password on your phone and doing the hard token on your phone, it's kind of, you're not using that independent two-factor authentication. Uh, as that technology evolves, the DEA is definitely working with EHR vendors to try to come up with new novel ways to be able to do that. We do use a soft token at Hartford, which is basically um, kind of like your, your Google authenticator. There's a rotating set of numbers. You'll get a, either a push notification or you can add that six-digit code in, into the HR, and then the, the second one is, is your password. So I'm looking at a document now that's on the healthit.gov site about the relatively low adoption of e-prescribing of controlled substances across the country. I guess this was 2016 data I'm looking at, and it's, it's hovering around the 10 to 20 percent. So I get the point that it's going to take some regulation to push this thing, it sounds like, and really get us as a country to 100 percent 
All right, so let's just clarify something that I had said yeah. earlier. The go-live date on the e-prescribing of controlled substances, it is 2021. The EPCS is going to be 1-1-2021, and the new script standard update is going to be 1-1-2020. Okay, that makes sense. I'm straight now. See, I'm glad we're having this conversation because <laughs> this stuff is not easy. Um, tell me, what else is good or exciting about this new standard that we might want to know about so that we would take it sooner rather than later besides uh, change rx and cancel rx which are, are two ones that i'm pretty excited about i kind of touched on change rx before but change rx is the ability for a pharmacy to request a, a change in the medication that you send to them electronically so say they they you ordered one arb and they ran it through the patient's insurance and, and there was another it was a different preferred arb well they could now request that change directly through the ehr and that could come to you and you can make that switch rather than calling the office and, and, and talking through, leaving messages, and then have, having to have the prescriber uh, write a new prescription. You could also do uh, form switches, right? So what if they wanted to get your approval? Say you ordered Lantus, but um, the... the the PBM was only paying for for Basilar, and those aren't those two aren't AB related in for, for the FDA, right? So the pharmacist can't make a direct interchange. Well, now that interchange could be accepted via a message in your in basket. Um, another big one is the dispense counts, right? So sometimes that patient comes in and say, "Hey, I've been on this in a long time. Is there any way we can switch it to 90 days? It's it's easier for me to come into the pharmacy, and uh, it's it'll be cheaper for me if I if I pick up 90 days." And we all know that patients who actually have 90-day scripts, they're, they're more adherents than patients who have 30-day scripts who have to pick up more often. Right now, your offices get inundated with those requests because those are not automated right now, and those cannot be done electronically. So hopefully, going forward here, those can be done electronically. And also, you can do script clarifications. Did you mean this or that, right? If we just had a small clarification that we needed to know that maybe didn't require a phone conversation, that could be done electronically. Now, there's not a lot of organizations out there who have a lot of experience with this, right? Because we could have been live on ChangeRx, but not a lot of pharmacies are, are utilizing it highly yet. So it remains to be seen, how is this going to be handled in the EHR, right? So if, if they change it, how is the system going to automatically create that, right? We don't want this change in the pharmacy and not in your EHR to reflect that. So it'll be interesting to see as everyone gains more experience with this, uh, how, how the ChangeRx is going to work. Some of the other nice things are new RX message type. So now before when a, a message was expired or you didn't technically own that message, right? They were sending you a, uh, an electronic refill, but maybe you weren't the original person who sent that script. They couldn't send that electronically. Um, so they have a new RX type message where they can request a new script. Say if the, the prescription's expired or the discharging physician was the hospitalist and now they want to request a new script for that same particular thing, they can now request that electronically maybe to the, the physician in the private office or the PCP instead. My hospitalists are cheering right now. Yeah. And when I announced this, you should have heard the applause that came out of the surgeons and the hospitalists that when they're sending someone home and the patient says, Doc, I need a refill on my blood pressure medicine, yeah, they don't want the patient to go without their medicine, so they'll do it, but they don't want to own that prescription forever. Yeah, so that's going to be a big one. There, And on top of that, there's actually two other functionalities, and I, I can't speak to how every EHR is going to do this, and we really can't speak to how this is actually going to work functionally yet. But theoretically, anyway, there is going to be two new fields in, in the Epic software, anyway, that you can choose, um, I am not the refilling provider, and you could also choose who is the refilling provider, right? So if you have that provider in their directory, 
the vision in my head and in other people's heads is how it's going to happen is if Dr. Smith is the hospitalist and he's discharging, he can say, follow up with Dr. Weissman. He's the PCP. And the pharmacy will be able to see that on their side. And hopefully they'll be able to have that profile of the other physician within their electronic um, record and their electronic software. And then they can say, okay, we can route the refills back to that particular thing. I think because it's so new that conceptually, it seems that it's, it's going to be good. It's going to be another method from trying to re reroute these prescriptions because that is a big issue that we've been trying to solve, especially in our OR. Um, so hopefully we're going to try to get that, maybe start off with our hospital-based physician's assistants who typically do the discharge prescriptions, entering that attending doc who maybe is, is working in a private office. I don't think it's going to be the, the silver bullet. I think we get a lot of faxes and a lot of times we get the faxes are because we're the last resort from that pharmacist who literally can't find anyone to do a refill on this person or you have, you have automated softwares within your system that say okay well we've tried electronically so many times we're just going to send a fax back to the originating uh place so i don't think it's going to be a silver bullet but i think definitely it's going to uh help the situation there's something that you mentioned during change rx that it sounds like we really do have to figure out the workflows of who's going to get those messages i'm just picturing my hospitalist after they discharge someone they may not check their in-basket. They go off shift. They could be off for a week. So we have to get a pool going. And same thing with our emergency docs, that we have to figure out who's checking in-baskets uh, is going to become important for everyone in the system. Yeah, and, and there have been some improvements in the HR to really, so to, to tailor this. Sometimes it used to be an all or nothing, but you really have to look at, who. yeah, who do you want to have this cancel? Do you need to have it when that admitting physician is kind of updating the med list and tinkering with it and removing stuff that they that it's been a long time ago? Uh, do you want it to fire, cancel, or X message then? Do you, do you want to do it on discharge? Who's going to monitor that in basket? I think it's easier in the clinics to, to kind of figure that out. We all have uh, that nurse pool or that clinical support pool that they'll they'll monitor those in basket messages. Uh, I think it'll be difficult. I mean, it's not the end of end alls as as we've learned from a lot of different organizations. It, it helps a lot, but the, it it creates new problems. Just like any other technology, uh, it creates new problems. I'm trying to think about how this works because. Let's say I've got a private practice that's not on our platform. They're on a different EHR in their office. So they're discharging the patient. They write the prescription. They get a, a change request from the pharmacist that's probably going to come back to the hospital, but they're not on that EHR. They're not going to be looking in that in-basket probably ever. So How, what, what you challenge. Yeah, what you can do is you really have to look at what we call levels of service. So every provider in your directory has a different level of service. Some have no levels of service. They're just a provider that's there for being a referral. Um, they have new RX, which they're able to do news, uh, refills, electronic uh, prescribing of controlled substances, cancel RX, and change RX. So you really would have to look at who you wanted to be able to accept those messages as level of service. So, so if you did have a hospitalist, you would say, okay, well, they're not, your hospitalists typically probably don't have a refill level of service, and they might not have a change RX level of service. So if you didn't think that a message type was appropriate for that particular provider, you would turn that off. Now, it always becomes difficult when you have, okay, now I got a hospitalist who works two days a week in clinic or, or, or some other thing of that nature or a resident where they do get refills sometimes and not refills other times and you can only have one setting. Um, it does become, okay, well, what are we going to do there? But um, you do have to go over your levels of service and, and see which levels of service are most appropriate for which, which providers. That is interesting. Tell me about the height and weight requirements. That's gotten a lot of buzz in the CMIO community, particularly in the pediatric area. 
that you have to we, we get the weight but do we always get height help me with what's required on height and weight for prescriptions yeah that's an that's an interesting thing it's it's kind of actually uh in, in a, a little bit of limbo now i was reading some um some organizations that have gone live they've they've said that the ehr is going to roll back that requirement initially it was going to be ncbp requirement for anyone under the age of 18 you're gonna to have to send over that uh, height and weight with that and i think they're going to roll back that inline validation right now that's stopping that from happening i think it's a really good thing but i think if you don't have possibly alerts for your providers that they don't have an active weight on file or they don't have a recent weight on file what happens if it's they have a weight on file from three years ago their pediatrician but now they're showing up to your urgent care clinic they're 17 and they might not have got a weight when they're coming in for their for, for something that's in uh, diagnosis for urgent care so you know i, I think uh it's it's still up in the air right now from what i've read i think it's a really good thing because i think it gives a, the ability for us to send especially weight um being able to send the weight on that on that pediatric patient when um that that pharmacist is sitting there and they're like well i'm trying to fill it and i'm trying to uh, i'm trying to know and make sure this is clinically correct for this patient and having that weight coming over from the ehr is uh able to help them validate that. From our end, we've also recently looked at putting that on the on, on our, our paper, our fax prescriptions as well to kind of help things out. So I'm picturing the workflow when I'm at the baseball game and I on call and a patient needs something called in and I'm going to do that calling and I don't have a height or a weight on that patient, um, I'm going to make it up. No, wait, I didn't say that. I'm going to um, somehow have to get that. I guess you ask the patient and, and try to part of what you're going to gather from the patient is the information when you're when you're on call but that's going to be a new workflow for providers is to make sure they have that height and weight when they're talking to the patients that'll be that'll be new yeah i'll say yeah definitely for your pediatric patients more to come on that on whether or not ncpdp is gonna maybe um change their standards a little bit i think they might be looking at maybe not going much as on the height but still requiring the rate usually we consider something less than 14 pediatric in our hospital when we consider weight-based dosing. So I don't know if having that on a 16 or 17 year old where you're probably not using weight-based dosing anymore at that point um, is, is really necessary. But yeah, um, it'll be interesting to see that going forward. I heard there's something coming with allergies and intolerances that's related to this new standard. Are we going to be able to get the practices, the EHR, and the pharmacy systems to have the same allergies in it? Is that possible? Is that coming? You know, th this is uh, kind of along the lines of there, there are going to be a bunch of new fields. And there, there are literally hundreds of new fields that are going to be ready to be sent over. Allergies and intolerances are going to be able to be sent over. EHR, you're... you're all of your allergies are, are mapped to RX norm, and RX norm is, should be a, a standard that everybody's using, all the EHRs are using, and all, all your pharmacy systems should be using. It, it, it's going to be interesting to see what, what, what are the contents of those messages and whether or not these pharmacies are turn, turning them on and, and doing it. But certainly going forward, you are going to be, have the ability to send all, those pa all the patient's allergy information, and if you've mapped those those reactions right so those reactions are snowmed codes and if you've re if you've mapped those reactions can now that pharmacy accept that kind of codified uh, standard snowmed code and looking at that and saying well, okay well we put a reaction in our system that's really maybe not an allergy or maybe doesn't have an exact snowmed and then what happens with that when you don't have an exact translation on a particular reaction or a particular allergy because it's a custom allergy that that'll be more to come as it's one one twenty twenty is definitely not the end of this. It's going to be an interesting year of, of of figuring out. I think 
everybody from either side figuring out the new capabilities of, of this. Um, some of the other new things are you'll be able to have the capability of sending lab values, right? So all the labs are linked to standard link values. So will we be able to just as a standard send the patient's last INR with Coumadin? Um, one of the things pharmacies have to track uh, ANCs and white blood cell counts for patients on clozapine. Can we just send that electronically through the EHR? One of the big things also for our uh, suboxone providers, our, 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 our wavered providers, is we can now send the uh, narcotic abuse DEA number um, through the uh, electronic message. Historically, we've had to use the uh, notes to pharmacy sections. So we'll be able to send that over as discrete data going forward. And also other things I've read are, are being able to send the patient's insurance information over, right? So if they're going to a new pharmacy, not having to wait until um, that patient shows up to the pharmacy to, to make sure that's gone through insurance or making sure that that prescription is ready and on hand when that patient, patient comes in. So there's a bunch of new data fields and it'll be really interesting going forward when we realize really what's going out in this in these messages and how pharmacies can utilize them. Is this two-way so that if a pharmacist knows of an allergy and they could push, that's new, they could push that to me in, to my EHR or is it just one way? Um, I don't know. No, Cause I, I think when we look at, when we look at our EHRs, usually we, we, when we look at reconcile outside information, um, we're looking at particular data sources. I don't know if uh, SureScripts is going to aggregate all of that information into a data source. They certainly could, right? So if, as they're sending that information back, every patient in your system has, in SureScripts has a unique patient identifier. Um, so that information should be able to be done and just much like the dispense history that you're getting from SureScripts that's being able to be pinged off that patient. Um, if that information is getting sent around and, and attached to that patient somehow in SureScripts, we should be able to be use that information as well. But you know, then you're going to, again, one more source of uh, uh, duplicate information or superfluous information. So it'll be interesting, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that should be an advantage as well. So I want to let you go because I don't want to hold you past time here. This has been fantastic, by the way. I love this information. Really informative. Is there anything else that you think is important? Anything around? Uh, when this thing goes live, is it just, oh, we flip a switch and turn our backs on it and it's all good? Or what, what do we need to know as CMIOs about this go live when we do it? I think there's three timelines. So there's there's a timeline when it's available in your EHR uh, for upgrade. We just got that newest upgrade, right? So now, much like all of us, we are we're scrambling to try to get things done. Um, there's the EHR timeline. So then there's a SureScripts timeline. So okay, well, when is SureScripts going to be ready to kind of interact with you? And they're they're interacting now. They're, they're if you haven't contacted your SureScripts rep, they've certainly contacted you, and your EHR rep has probably certainly contacted you to say to try to get this process started. And then you have your organization timeline, right? So uh, when are we going to be available to have it for upgrade? And then also when are we going to be available to have the resources to get this in line? I think you have to look at when you look at one one twenty twenty, right? Nobody wants to go live on uh, on the new year on a holiday with with a new script standard. It's what are your resources going to be on that day? What are SureScripts resources going to be on that day? What are your EHR vendors resources going to be on that day? We are we're shooting for trying to do a couple weeks uh, ahead of one one twenty twenty, but we're going to flex that based on what we think. I don't think it's worth it to go forward with a bad product and if you're not ready and you're not confident to go forward and flip that switch for the thousands and thousands of transactions that your, your EHR does every day for e-prescribing. Um, and I'm of the thought that if it has to wait until the first week of January, the second week of January, I don't think that's going to be the end of the world. I know we all want to adhere to CMS standards. I'm not advocating anybody else for that, um, but I'm not going to, I don't think I'm going to lose sleep if it's not the, the new holiday 
with 200 other organizations going live at the same exact time and everybody's having issues and trying to get support on the phone. I think you have to weigh that. You have to weigh not only what your timeline is, but who's going to be there to support you on that day. Um, I think there are advantages of going live on the holiday because you have smaller volume, which was nice for us when we went live with EPCS. It was nice that we did have some issues early, but there was only a couple, there was a many less providers uh, doing prescriptions in the system. So it was easier for us to handle problems. I think you have to go back and forth and, and kind of look at that. And then remember that there is this phase out period. And, and according to SureScripts, the last time I we, thing we heard from them was that 95% of pharmacies will be in the quote unquote pilot stage by 1-1-2020. Does that mean? That can mean they're still testing on their end. So there is going to be the ability in our EHR anyway to flip between that. So the system's actually going to know what script standard the, the, the pharmacy is on and be able to flip that. But I don't think the physician's going to know. So now you're thinking, okay, well, this new capability, this 1,000 line SIG is, is ready, right? Well, okay, well, what's going to happen if it's, you send it to EHR who's not live yet? Is it going to just truncate it? Is it just going to send it off? So I think we're looking at let's go live with the script. So let's get that the, the meat and potatoes script ready to go and go out and then let's start adding on cancel let's start adding on change um, i think when we talk about um, change management and acceptance of change and acceptance of new things in the ehr um, i don't know if it's worth it to put it all on everybody at once so that, i think that's um, up to you and your organizational strategy that's just my thought you know piecemeal it in um, over time and get really end user acceptance of new product. Because again, those change RX and those cancel RX are gonna cause workflow issues with them, of themselves. Most, most organizations use those as entirely separate go live projects. And now you're talking about maybe combining those with a, a more technical go live as well. So it's the rip the bandaid approach or the slow incremental approach. A really great practical advice I think you just gave everyone, which is what I love about Doing this show is that uh, I always walk away with great practical little yeah I, one. Yeah, I could. Oh, sorry. I was. I was just going to say I could tell you from the experience at, but from the experience of, of a couple other people on the HR, the user web, talking about what's really good. They say if you can during functional testing, make sure you have somebody from SureScripts on the phone, somebody from the EHR on your phone, somebody from the interface on your phone and your ePrescribe analyst. And when you go live, do the exact same thing because it's gonna save you a lot of time shooting emails back and forth and troubleshooting if you can just get everyone in the same room on the same day. And as we get closer to go live, that is gonna become tougher and tougher because you're gonna have more more organizations pounding down SureScripts door and Epic or Cerner's door for the same resources at the same time. Yeah, I can totally see yeah. that. So, Scott, thank you for coming on the show. If people wanted to reach out to you, are you on LinkedIn? Is there a way for them to contact you? Yeah, LinkedIn would be the best thing. Um, I am on Twitter, but unless you want to hear uh, me just ranting about UConn sports, uh, LinkedIn is probably the best way. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for being on the show. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I have been your host, Dr. Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode. Mm-hmm.